This is Fundraising Radio, and today is a guest speaker. We have Eric DeStefanis, Venture Capital Analyst at Interlace Ventures and an associate at Chris Site Ventures. In this episode, we're going to talk about Eric's role in the venture capital and specifically how do venture analysts actually interact with startups because they're the first one usually to see the project and they're the ones to push it up to the chain to see uh, to, to show this project to the managing partners who are making the final decisions. So Eric, let's get started by you giving us some background on yourself and on Interlace Ventures as well as on Chris Side Ventures. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me on, Konstantin. Um, yeah, so I'm Eric DeSefanis. I've been working with Interlace Ventures for about half a year now and Crestside Ventures for a little bit longer. Started with them as an intern, then full-time upon graduating, um, and then joined Interlace back in, the, in December of 2019. Um, so Interlace is an early-stage venture fund investing in next-generation commerce. So that's anything within the retail space, touching on logistics, supply chain, e-commerce. It's very broad, but we look at technologies that are enabling the future of retail and future of commerce. Um, and then Chris Light Ventures is more of a family-run investment arm, and we are more industry agnostic, but also look at the pre-seed and seed stage. Um, yeah, that's Chris Side and Interlace in a nutshell. That's pretty interesting. So you're focused on retail technologies, and can you give us some idea of what specifically are you looking for uh, in terms of what's the example of a company that you've recently invested in? Um, yeah, so at Interlace, we recently invested in a company called Singuli, and they're a predictive analytics platform for um, for for retailers to help them manage inventory and project inventory demand, project or predict how new product releases will be um, like interpreted by existing customers. And basically, to, to help them prevent stockouts and to match inventory with demand so that's uh, an example of a recent investment yeah that's that's a pretty good example so now let's move on to talking about our major topic for today and it's venture analyst i mean analysts at venture capitals and what exactly do you do at uh interlace ventures um yeah so interlace we're a small team there's three of us it's me and then the two partners um, and as an analyst, I'm usually the first one to meet with a startup or talk to the founder. So given that we're a small team, it's a pretty broad role. But the gist of it is that I get, you know, that I um, have the first phone call or the first meeting. And the way that we usually find deals is that they come to us inbound or a referral via our personal network. Or we find them by reading about them in an article or finding them in some database online. So what the role so you, really entails, is, yeah. You mentioned something that really interests me a lot. So you said that sometimes you find startups in a database. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Uh, yeah, so often, I mean, I think one of the best ones is Crunchbase because you'll mm -hmm. find even very early stage companies, often you'll find them in Crunchbase unless they're still operating um, in a stealth mode. But often they'll be on Crunchbase and that's a good, I think Crunchbase has a really good filtering mechanism. So it's easy to, to search for retail startups or, uh, you know, like an, any niche within the retail space. And then you can, 
search for founding date, location, and it's been really helpful. So we've, uh, that's been a really good source of deal flow. But I'd say that the best deals typically come in inbound. So either they reach out to us or they come via referral from somebody in our network, another VC fund, or maybe a founder who met the, uh, who met the other founder. Um, so right. that's the main source of our deal flow. Inbound outreach is great, uh, and we covered it multiple times on this podcast. So I think we're going to focus on Crunchbase specifically. I'm a big fan of Crunchbase. I think that if a company is not in Crunchbase, that's a red flag for me personally. And uh, I think that it's just so easy to put yourself on Crunchbase uh, that I see no reason why not doing that. So uh, how exactly are you looking for those startups? So you just go through the list of... Uh, uh, I don't know, a recent, recently opened startups in the retail field or how exactly do you, do you find them? Um, so depending on what we're looking for, we can filter for geography, when they were founded, the amount of funding they've taken in. Mm-hmm. But to your point about that being a red flag, there's one company that we recently invested in that's not on Crunchbase. They're a really exciting company, but they're still operating in stealth mode. So that's why they haven't made a page on Crunchbase. So I'd say, like, be cautious with that. That's not always a red flag, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But with um, So, yeah, back to Crunchbase, it's really useful. You can become, or you can make very niche searches um, in terms of geography, funding, who has funded them. So right now, in light of Corona, we're looking at a lot of companies that may typically be too late for us in terms of the amount of funding they've taken in. Mm-hmm. But if they've taken in maybe five to six million, they're almost always on Crunchbase. It's been really useful to find companies that we may have missed in their prior rounds and uh, be able to see them and be able to reach out to them. Absolutely, yeah. I'm a, I'm a, as I said, I'm a big fan of Crunchbase. I'm actually paying for their paid plan, uh, which completely pays off because it's just a wonderful source of uh, investor outreach. You can search anything there basically and uh, yeah and it's fascinating to look through all the companies on the platform the 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 note to my listeners most of them are actually startup founders not investors (laughs) so uh you can do the same thing about investors you can filter them out through the stages they invest in they you can search when was the fund actually created so that you know which part of the cycle is it in how much funding do they have? Actually, no, that's not a part of it. But you can basically filter out based on anything. There are so many filters there. I know over 100, I think. But yeah, the, the, the tool is just great. So um, let's talk about what you're looking in in the company. When you get an inbound uh, email uh, with a pitch deck, how does it usually work? Do you just get inbound? So for example, it's from a founder you never met before and it's not an introduction. You just get a quick mm-hmm. email. What is usually on that email? Um, typically, I say more often than not, they are personalized, which definitely helps. Um, mm-hmm. But typically, and that's easy. I mean, if you just look at the fund's website, you'll have an idea of what they invest in, their stage, and it'll be easy to tailor it to whoever you're emailing. Um, but typically, just a short introduction and try Often, founders are very brief in what their company is about, what they're solving, and a deck. And it makes it very easy for us to look at it, see if there's a potential fit or if there's a potential for us to work together. And then we always 
we always get back to Sounders and try to schedule a phone call as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. Got it. So here I want to move on to the motivation of yourself. So uh, I think founders need to understand what motivates an analyst to push the deal forward to the managing partners and what, what how do you profit? How do so you? What's your what's your major incentive? So for example, when you get an inbound email asking like, hey, here is uh, the startup. Uh, what happens if you pass this startup through the chain and the, the managing partners actually decide to invest? Do you get some sort of bonus or uh, what, what's the incentive there? What's the incentive for me personally to push it? Yeah. Um, I mean, we try to find companies that have interesting potential. So if that's there and we believe in the team and the company, then then we'll always push it and try to get it to a meeting with the partners. Right, right. So, um, I was actually and then if you're talking about like incentive plans, I think that varies between funds. If, right. if uh, more people in more junior positions get a piece of the carry, um, I think that varies between funds. Right, definitely. Yeah, uh, you're right about that. But here, I wanted to ask you about the. Uh, I forgot what was I, but I was about to ask you something, and I forgot <laughs> the question. No worries. Away sometimes for me. <laughs> so. Um, Oh gosh, I need to remember what it was. It's <laughs> not a problem. All right, let's just go to to the. That list happens of now. Like when every day is more or less the same. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have so many calls. It happens to me several <laughs> times a day, so I, I'm really used to this. I don't even feel awkward yeah. anymore. But <laughs> what do you think are the three must-have points on the pitch deck? Can you repeat that? Uh, what are the three must-have points on the pitch deck? So when you're reviewing a pitch deck, what do you feel that you just have to see on the pitch deck? Yeah. Um, so three must-haves. Say one of them is like a, a quick one-liner or just a very brief statement about what you do because it makes it easier for me to talk about your company to partners or to other investors who may be interested. So something that really summarizes what your startup does or what your, what pain you're looking to solve or what pain you're solving um, just makes it easier to talk about and, and to share your startup with others. And another must have is a good overview of the competition. Um, it helps out when it, it helps me when I do research um, to, to have a, I mean, that's, part of my job too, but it, it just helps out and it shows that you've done your research and that you have a, um, an understanding of the competitive landscape. And how to do that varies. I mean, one of the most common things is the, uh, the typical quadrant matrix, but that I don't think that gives a great view of the competitive landscape because you can really choose any X and Y axis that you want. But that's another must-have. So a, a good overview of the competition and the, uh, the competitive landscape. Right. Yeah, I think that's really important. And I've seen tons of pitch decks that have such a weird, you know, uh, like a graph with competitors, like these are expensive and these are not useful and we are the best. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, that, yeah. that doesn't help. So, I mean, if you're plotting it against only like two different, two, uh, two data points on the X and Y axis, then... It really doesn't tell you that much, but just a, a slide that outlines competition, how you're different, how you're better, um, and how you're positioned relative to them. Right. Yeah. I prefer when they just write out, you know, like a list of tools or 
competitive advantages that they got. So uh, here I actually remembered the question that I was about to ask you, and it's about reaching okay. out to uh, funds. So most founders try to reach out directly to fund managers or partners of the fund just you know, to skip the middleman, what they think. Do you think it makes mm-hmm. sense for them to reach out first to analysts like yourself? So for example, just shoot you a message on LinkedIn after sending an uh, email to your website or... Should they just try to actually hit the managing partner? Um, often, if they reach out directly to the managing partner, then it'll still be forwarded to me. <laughs> um, often, because often the managing partner is just, I mean, they're very busy. They, they have a lot going on. So that's often how the process looks. But if I get a message on LinkedIn, then I always get back to the founder. Um, the same with email. So if, it, if you reach out to to me or to any analyst, then you should be, you should get a reply. Right. Yeah. I think that's a, a really good pro of uh, reaching out to analysts instead of managing partners because managing partners often just, you know, ignore the messages because they don't have time to respond to all of them. So uh, here I wanted to ask you about the due diligence. Uh, I recently got into this topic of discovering what due diligence is and how it works. So can you, I assume that you're the one in charge of doing the due diligence process, right? Or the major part of it? Um, the, uh, the initial stages of it. And then the further along in the process, the startup gets um, like first partner meeting. And then after partners have met, if we have a consensus that this is something that we are really interested in, um, everybody gets involved at that stage. But typically, I'll start out with preliminary research and gathering as much information as possible about the company and the industry that they're that they're targeting. That they're so, in. after you have the first call with this company, and you're like, "Okay, that might go somewhere." Where where's the first place that you go to just to you know, gather the first bits of information? Um, so, before the first call, we, I also try to do some research just so that I'm better prepared and so that we make better use of the founder's time too. Um, so I'll do basic research such as trying to find media about the company, look up their social pages, their website, any articles I can find. Um, and then also look into competition uh, just to have a, a more, uh, a better conversation about mm-hmm. them, um, how they're different from competition. So the more informed I am before the conversation, the better use of both my time and the, the founder's time. Um, but after, after first call, if it's something that still seems to be a fit for our fund and that we're, that I'm interested in, um, we, so the way that our process works is that every meet, every week we have a deal phone meeting where we talk about companies that we've met with or looked at throughout the week. And if I've spoken to a company still interested in it, I'll share with the, or regardless, I'll share with the partners, um, during our meeting. And then we reach a, a consensus there. Is this something that we want to look into more or? Are we not a fit for this company and therefore should pass on? Mm-hmm. Um, and then following that meeting, if it's something that we're still interested in, then the next step is either either more research and then another chat with the founder or straight to a partner meeting. Got it. So I'm curious, has it ever happened that during the due diligence process, you found something so horrible that you had to pass the company? I don't know, maybe the founder of the company just posted some really weird stuff on their Instagram or something like that. <laughs> Did that ever happen? Um, no, not to me. That yeah, hasn't happened. I mean, we've passed, even when we got into later stages of diligence, we've uncovered something or just realized that it's not for us. 
But anything that's like a real red flag, no. I can't say that I've, that that's happened to me. Got it. Not yet. So, <laughs> well, once it happens, let me know because I, lo- I love those stories, to be honest. Well, that happened when I rented out a... I had a little flap that I rented out a few years ago, and I didn't do my research on the guy who rented it from me. So after we signed the papers, I checked out his Facebook page, and he like all of his photos were him posing with like huge snakes and reptiles and okay. so yeah fun that's fun love it love it <laughs> so okay yeah you run tons of meetings with founders you run the screen calls what do you think are the three main red flags that you often see during those calls and meetings um three okay so main red flags one of them is it's hard to say red flag. I mean, obviously, if there's something about the founder, like you uncover something like we were just talking about, that can be a red flag. But three things that aren't necessarily red flags, but are kind of off-putting. Um, so like if, um, let's see here. if you're projecting maybe a billion dollars in sales after year one, that's very unlikely. Um, not impossible, but unlikely. And I think it can come it can come across as a little naive. Um, and then if there's like if I don't understand what you're working on, off like I sh- you should know a lot more about what you're building or what you're working on than I do. I should be the dumb one in the conversation. <laughs> so I'll often ask a lot of dumb questions, and sometimes I'll ask the same question three times or four times if I still don't understand it. So I really appreciate when founders make a genuine effort to help me understand. Um, even if that's answering the same question four times or explaining something over and over again, that I really appreciate. So if there's any like sense of arrogance or like a condescending feeling um, in that type of context, and that can be, uh, it comes across mm-hmm. kind of negatively, poorly. Yeah. So uh, Does that answer the question? That's... That's a pretty good answer. Yeah. All right. Thank you. <laughs> I wanted to ask you. So recently I interviewed uh, three. Uh, so I interviewed the vice president of Tech Coast Angels Los Angeles, then president of Tech Coast Angels Orange County, and then president of San Diego Orange County uh, of Tech Coast Angels. And they all said that they have huge networks of uh, other angel groups. So some of them have like over 50 angel groups in their network who share the deal flow sometimes. So like a couple of uh, times a month, they get together and they share like three or five best projects. Does it happen the same to you? So as an analyst, do you have uh, a lot of other analysts in your network? And once you find some interesting uh, opportunity, but it doesn't quite fit the strategy of the fund, and you're like, oh, I should just forward it to, to my network. Does that happen to you or do you just like, oh, you know, I'll ignore it. Um, yeah, so I find that people are very, open, are often op- very open to sharing. Um, so I try to have regular catch-up calls with other analysts or even people higher up in other funds. Uh, regular catch-up calls where we share deals or talk about companies that maybe we both looked at or if there's something that I look at and it turns out that it's not a fit for our fund, then if there's somebody that I know who looks into that exact industry or who may be interested, then I'll always share with them. Um, but yeah, I find that people are very open to share because the more you share with others, the more they'll share with you. So it's all about paying it forward and then you'll get the same in return. 
Um, but when it comes to analysts, I find that, like, yeah, I think that people who are maybe not at the top at different firms are more willing to share. Maybe partners can be more protective of certain deals. Um, but at the analyst level, I find that people are very open to sharing. Right. That's, that's a good point. I totally agree with you on that. And here I actually want to follow up with uh, something that I forgot to ask you. Uh, why does your fund invest in Canada? So during our pre, pre-interview pre call, we discussed that shortly, but I, to be quite honest, I forgot it. So okay. I know you, you're investing in Canada as well. Why? Why not just stay in the US? You say Canada? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, so we we did a company pretty recently called uh, Commerce JS, based in Vancouver, I believe. Um, so why Canada? Because geographically, it's close to the U.S., and also the market is similar enough. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and that that particular deal was very interesting to us. True. I mean, Canada yeah. is Canada. For me, it's like second America. <laughs> Speaking yeah. which there too, so I, I don't really see much difference between those two countries. But anyways, mm. here I think we have to. We're moving on to our last question, then we'll wrap it up. What do you think are the three first steps the founder should take to get the first check from an investor? The three first steps. Yep. Oh, um, be really, really motivated. To, um, to achieve what you're setting out to achieve. That would be number one. Just be very motivated, very passionate about what you're working on. Um, number two, be, like, accept feedback. Um, you don't have to implement everything that you hear back, but be open to any critique, any advice that you may hear. And then listen to everything and keep what works for you and maybe disregard what doesn't. Um, what else? Number three, I mean, just go for it and like reach out to people. People are really willing to help most of the time. And I find that especially now when people maybe have less to do and I think a lot of people are feeling more or wanting to feel more connected to others right now than maybe before all this. So mm-hmm. reach out to people, ask for help if you need help, send cold emails and eventually you should get a bite. That's the first time that someone actually recommended sending cold emails on my podcast. I'm horrified. I'm really? <laughs> Why do you say I mean, that? I do it every day. I do it every day. Oh, I reach out to like people at other funds just for, for quick chats or reach out to founders if I see something cool online and want to learn more about it. Right, and right. most of the time people get back to you. Cold emails, you man, cold emails as like you make some research and you make it personalized, right? But you just yeah. don't person personally. No, no, like do some research. And by cold email, I mean like emailing somebody who you've never had contact with before, uh, but still do your research. Of course. Make it personal. Yeah. Now yeah. that works because cold emails for me is just, you know, a template where you send it to a thousand people and you just wait for a response from, from a couple of them and hope that they will actually respond. So, yeah, your version oh, is yeah, my I, I follow your advice as well. Every day, basically, I reach out to tens of people, many of whom mm-hmm. are we, uh, becoming speakers on my podcast later on, which is great. So here, I think we'll wrap it up. 
I have just one last question that I started asking my speakers recently. And it's, what do you think after this podcast is over? I mean, not the whole podcast, but this episode is over. And when it's, when it's done, what should the listener do? Like, literally, should they maybe go on Crunchbase and make sure that their company is on Crunchbase or go on LinkedIn and, I know, add something to the description of their company? What one specific, uh, you know, small step that they can take right now? Um, I mean, yeah, it's easier to be found if you are on Crunchbase. Yeah. Um, and same if you have an appealing website, updated LinkedIn page, and then start reaching out. Like if you're a retail startup, then reach out to us at Interlace. Definitely. Yeah. I'll leave a link to Interlace here in the description of this episode. So if you're looking for funding in that field, make sure to reach out to Eric or their team. And we'll wrap it up here. Thanks a lot, Eric, for coming up and for sharing your experience of an analyst in the fund. I think it was really interesting, some new information for me, for sure. And I think a lot of new stuff for my listeners. I think hopefully many of them will actually rethink how they reach out to funds and start reaching out to analysts because I think that works. And hopefully that helps. Thanks, Eric, a lot. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Constantine. Um, uh, I really like the podcast. Keep it up.